I invite you to turn with me, again, if you have a Bible with you, to the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and chapter 5. On Monday evening, we noted that Revelation teaches us that we need to have a heavenly perspective rather than an earthly perspective. Last night, we saw the admonition um, from Revelation chapter 2 about our great need of love. And I appreciated some of the thoughts that came out today as well, Elaine this morning and some of the others, about our great need of loving the way Christ loves. Tonight, in the next couple of nights, I'd like to look with you at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Again, just briefly, Revelation 4 and 5 are foundational chapters for understanding the rest of the book. Uh, some individuals have called these chapters the fountainhead of the entire book of Revelation. In chapter 4 and 5 is introduced to the heavenly sanctuary. There's some tremendous pictures that are brought to view in these two chapters. Now, there's questions as to where in the sanctuary is this? What's the time setting of that? Let's leave those aside for this evening. And I want to focus on a particular part here, Revelation chapter 4 in verse 1. And it says, after these things I looked, after these things, after the seven churches, after the last church, the church of Laodicea, after these things I looked, and they behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, what? A throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. As John's view is taken away from the seven churches here on earth, and it's taken up into heaven, the first thing he sees is the throne. And then he sees the one sitting on the throne. Incidentally, one sitting on the throne is John's favorite expression for God in the book of Revelation. The first object of attention, though, is the throne. Why? Well, in the book of Revelation, the throne is the preeminent object in the story. And when I use the word story, I don't mean a made-up story, but John's telling us a story. He's telling us the story of the great controversy. And the throne is the central object in the book. The word throne, for example, is used in the New Testament some 62 times. 47 of those times is in the book of Revelation. So you can tell that the throne is vitally important. God has a throne. God's allies have a throne. Christ has a throne. God's people ultimately sit on thrones, Revelation chapter 20. The 24 elders, members of the heavenly council, they sit on thrones. But someone else has a throne in the book of Revelation, and that's Satan. Turn back with me, Revelation chapter 2, just briefly. Revelation 2, in the letter to the church of Pergamon, Verse 12, Revelation 2, 12, and then 13, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, 
The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's, what's the next word? Well, it depends on your translation. If you have the King James, it'll say where Satan's seat is. But it's the exact same underlying word as throne. And more modern translations would translate it, and other language translations will tra translate that as Satan's throne. So God has a throne. God's allies have a throne. But who else has a throne? Satan. And Satan, his allies, have a throne. There's the kings of the earth, which by implication have thrones. But turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, it's a very important chapter. In verse 2, one of Satan's allies comes up out of the sea. We looked at it briefly the other night. He's got seven heads. He's got ten horns. He's got diadems on his on his horns, verse 2, he's partially like a leopard. His feet are like those of a bear. His mouth is the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his, well, King James again says seat, but that's the same word, throne. So just as Christ sits with the Father on his throne, Satan has an associate, the dragon has an associate that sits on his throne as well. What's the importance of the throne? Well, if we're thinking about this and we're, we're thinking biblically, we're thinking of some of the imagery that John would use, is there another Old Testament verse, let's see if you can get it, I'm thinking about it, that relates Satan and his desires and the word throne? Bible students? Isaiah 14, which says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, Isaiah chapter 14. So here we see Revelation, John, as he's writing the book of Revelation through the imagery that he saw through the Holy Spirit, is the very first thing we see in, is the throne, and it's important for us to realize as we reread Revelation that in Revelation, the throne is contested territory. It's true that God is sovereign, but it's not true that that sovereignty is uncontested. That is what the great controversy is about. God has a throne, but is God fit to rule on that throne? And that's the big question that Revelation tries to answer. And so as, we, as this, these two chapters, chapter 4 and 5, which are linked together, as soon as John is introduced to heaven, the first thing he sees is the throne, and then he sees the one that sits on the throne, and back to Revelation chapter 4, he's described, the one that sits on the throne in verse 3, Revelation 4 in verse 3, and he who was sitting, again, notice that expression, is like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance, and there's a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Verse 4, around the throne are 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And as the chapter unfolds, we're introduced to four living creatures, and the chapter continues. But just tonight, in our short time together, I want to focus our attention on the throne, and in Revelation, the throne is contested territory. The question is, who 
will ultimately rule. Satan, since the beginning of the great controversy, which began in that council in heaven, Ellen White calls it a divine council, in that council in heaven, that heavenly council rather, that's where the great controversy began. That's where Satan began to implant in people's minds, not in people's minds, in angelic beings' minds, is God really fit to rule? And when we read Revelation and we realize that Satan takes his throne and he gives it to the beast, what's our normal way of thinking? Who does the beast represent in a prophetic, historic sense? Revelation 13. Who would the first beast in Revelation 13 represent in a <clears throat> prophetic, historic sense? The papal system. And when we talk about the dragon giving his seat to the papacy, we're thinking of a lot of historic events, which are true. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. That is true, but there's something else we need to see. I'd like to point it out to you from an article um, that I came across, Signs of the Times. Uh, actually, a very interesting article. Signs of the Times, February 19, 1894. The other night, we also mentioned briefly this video that's going around about the protest being over. Notice what Ellen White says. <clears throat> Protestants are losing the mark of distinction that distinguished them from the world. They are lessening the distance between themselves and the Roman power. That's true, isn't it? That that distance is getting smaller and smaller. Um, and she has a, a whole host of things. Something else, she says, shall we offer insult to the God of heaven after he has freed us from the Romish yoke and place ourselves in bondage to this anti-Christian power. That's a very powerful quotation. The problem is that we think that anti-Christian power is exclusively out there. But the question for us is, who is on the throne? Is God really ruler in my life? Have I really come to the decision through the cross of Christ that God is fit to rule here? She goes on to say, popery is the religion of human nature. Are you human? Well, I hope so. <laughs> if you're human, you have to battle with popery inside. Now, none of us have a tiara or any of those things. But again, in the book Education, <clears throat> on page 190, Ellen White says that the student, that's us, should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and learn to trace the working through the records of history and prophecy. That's the historic prophetic aspect. But notice what else she says. The student should see how this controversy, the great controversy, who is going to sit on the throne, enters into every phase of human experience. How in every act of life, he, the student, you, me, are revealing the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives. And whether we will or not, we are deciding what side of the controversy we will be on. Amen. Education 190. And so as we read Revelation, 
We reread Revelation. It's important for us, yes, to understand the prophetic scenario. Very important. But it's also important for us to understand how it applies to me. And as soon as this vision in chapter 4 and 5 opens, we see this throne. The throne is contested territory. And the question is, is God fit to rule? That's the question raised in the heavenly council. That's the question that we need to decide. God has given an answer to that question in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we continue to spend a little bit of time every night in Revelation, I pray that we'll see that more clearly. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the freedom of choice that we have, that although your throne is under attack, you have carried yourself with openness, justice, and love throughout this controversy. May those attributes draw our hearts that you truly may reign in our lives. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.